All right. My name's Dave Dorst. If you are new and I haven't met you, and as Dave Kaminsky mentioned, uh, we would love to have you over for lunch if this is your first time or you've been coming for a little bit. This is the newcomer's lunch, and we got room for you, right? We're going to have a big mixed grill, and uh, it'll be great. So uh, even if this is your first time, if you don't already have lunch plans, come down and, and talk to us, and then follow us home. If you got your sermon outline, today's text is from Exodus chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. This is our third sermon in Exodus. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. And they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When, he, when they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? And they said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter, Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Father God, we bless our study of the scriptures this morning, even as we have prepared our hearts in singing your praises and giving thanks and our bringing our prayers and supplications to you. Open our hearts and minds to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been in a situation where someone else was in danger? A situation where you, where someone needed help, they would be attacked or abused if no one intervened? It's hopefully an easy call if it's a loved one, someone you know that's at risk. Of course, you'd want to protect, defend them, step in. But what about it when it's someone you don't know? And you're aware that putting yourself, you're putting yourself at risk by intervening, that's maybe a tougher call. I remember a uh, man who came and preached and taught here one Sunday many years ago, 10 or 12 years ago, a man named Mo Leverett. Uh, he's a 
multi-gifted man. He's a pastor. He's a singer-songwriter with 10 or so albums. Amazing musician. Uh, he was a football coach. And uh, he had started in the 90s a ministry in some of the roughest parts of New Orleans called Desire Street Ministries. And his story, one of the stories he told, was when he first moved to New Orleans to start the ministry. Imagine yourself in that situation. He, he had a family, young family, and he's you know, trying to figure out what the neighborhoods are like. He's trying to meet the right people, figure out who he's going to minister to, who he's gonna, who's going to help him, you know, networking, and he's trying to get all these pieces put into place. And one day he's driving around with his family, and he happens to just drive by this man beating a woman on the side of the road. No one helping. Well, Moe's tough guy, football coach, southern gentleman. He wasn't going to let that happen. So he stopped, got out of the car, went over, grabbed the guy, pulled him off. And he said the guy was a little startled, but he stood back and he stopped. And then the man just sort of smiled at him, a bit of a menacing smile, full of gold teeth. Because Mo found out later this was a member of a gang, probably the leader of the gang and a drug dealer in town. And here's Mo, brand new to this area, and he's already made an enemy of someone that could hurt him and his family. Probably not the networking that he was looking for. It's risky business, sticking up for someone, placing yourself there, there could be serious consequences. Thankfully, God protected Mo and his family, and nothing came of that. He had many fruitful years with that ministry. But we see this danger in intervening in the life of the main character of our new sermon series in the book of Exodus. Another Mo, Moses, he sees something that troubles him. Thanks. And he acts to make it right. But that sets up a chain of events that change the entire course of his life. Up until now, the other two sermons, the first chapter and a half that we've studied, the action has revolved around Moses as a baby. And so it's what's happened to him and around him. Here, Moses steps forward and starts acting. He's 40 years old. We don't, we don't know that from Exodus. We know that from the book of Acts. Uh, the, uh, the martyr, Stephen, uh, in his speech right before he's stoned, is recounting the history of Israel. And he's presenting the gospel in a sense, but he's also indicting the blind leaders of Israel. And he's reminding them of their history. And pulling out a few passages from that, we learn greater detail about Moses' life. It's, it's in your outline. You can follow along. Acts 7, 22 and 23 says, And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. A few passages later, verse 30 says, Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, in a flame of fire, in a bush. And then verse 36, This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt, and at the Red Sea, and in the wilderness, 
for 40 years. So it's interesting that you can just separate, chop up Moses' life into three 40-year periods, if you've ever seen that before. 40 years of growing up, being educated in Egypt. 40 years out in Midian, raising a family, a shepherd. 40 years then after he goes back. And that's, of course, the majority of the book of Exodus and the following books. Leading the Israelites from Egypt to the Promised Land. But we get ahead of ourselves. In the, the first two verses of this text, we see that Moses had a heart for intervening for his people. So let me read again verses 11 and 12. One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, remember, Moses was a man who's been living a life of privilege in the palace, having been adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. And if some of the movies that have been made about Moses' life uh, make a, a big deal about him struggling to accept his true identity, and, and he, you know, he'll meet Aaron or Miriam, and they'll try to convince us, him, no, you're our brother, and no, I'm not. But I'm not sure how accurate that was. I feel like the scriptures indicate that he knew who his people were. Um, it seems that maybe his mother told him, since she nursed him early on, he had some kind of contact. Maybe it was obvious that he didn't look Egyptian, he looked Hebrew. Um, but he knew. And he identifies so much with the Hebrews, I'm not sure what took him till he was 40 years old, but he goes out to where they are because we know they're in slavery, in bondage, and these are his people. He finally, he looks. And the Hebrew word there that's used is not just watching and seeing, it's seeing with emotion. It's to be personally involved and invested. It means compassion that will move to action. It's, this, it's the same word used by Hagar back in Genesis when her son was dying. I cannot watch my son die. It's also used of God that he saw the oppression of his people and became involved and was moved. The burdens of these enslaved, mistreated Hebrews became Moses' burden. So we see that Moses here sticks up for his brother, but not in the way that God wanted him to. Moses would eventually be the deliverer of God's people, but here he tries to deliver with violence and on a timetable that God had not called him to. And so it says Moses looked around before he killed the guy. Now, I think we make the natural assumption he's looking around to make sure nobody can see, right? Because then it makes sense. Later, we're told that he, oh, he thought he had gotten away with it, but, but somebody found out. But some of the commentators thought he was looking around to see if anyone else was going to help, if there was going to be anyone else coming forward for justice. Is there a, a cop available? Um, and... It, I think we also assume that this was an Egyptian slave master beating a slave. It doesn't really say that either. And so we, I feel like 
when Moses saw that no one was going to intervene, he said, well, I guess it needs to be me. Either way, it's a tragic mistake, a sin before a holy God. Philip Ryken comments that for all of his admirable qualities shown here, his hatred of injustice, his opposition to slavery, his sympathy with those who suffered, and his deep affection for God's people, with one rash act, Moses threw away 40 years of spiritual preparation. Although he had a holy zeal to rescue God's people, his zeal was not based on knowledge. His, his failure had nothing to do with his motivation, but for his heart was in the right place. Rather, the problem was his method. Moses was trying to save God's people by his own works, rather than letting God save them in his time and by his grace. Well, now that Moses has stuck up for his people, he has another opportunity to help them. And this time it's intervening between his people. Verses 13 and 5 through 15, when he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? The man answered, he made, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses is discredited now among his own people as well as among the Egyptians. The passage in Acts tells us that he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. Maybe he thought he would get gratitude from the enslaved Hebrews, but they probably felt that if he's striking back, that it's just going to get worse for them, which we find out, of course, it does later. And the man that he rebukes has a very quick, kind of understandable reaction, right? You're telling me not to hit someone when you just killed a guy yesterday? I don't have to listen to you. So Moses realizes that his actions are not hidden, and, and word reaches Pharaoh who apparently turns on Moses pretty quickly, no matter what their past history was. Uh, he marks him as an enemy of the state. There's no trial. They're going to find Moses and kill him. So Moses has to flee far away. Now think for a minute about how God had used one of his people earlier. Think of the end of Genesis, the life of Joseph. And how God had orchestrated all the events of Joseph's, Joseph's life to make him become the right hand of Pharaoh. To essentially run the government of Egypt. And he used that position to save not only the lives of the Hebrews, of his people, of the tribes, but also all kinds of people in the area. As Joseph saved the grain during the fam, you know, in preparation for the famine. God placed him there. Now, shouldn't Moses have been trying to emulate 
Joseph and stay in the palace and influence Pharaoh's royal court for good? Is Moses thumbing his nose at God's good gift and provision? Did he really have to burn that bridge that had him in the good graces of the king of Egypt? Well, let's listen again because we we read this for the responsive reading, but we need to go to the words of Hebrews chapter 11. Four verses there, uh, verses 24 through 27. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Apparently, there was a lot more going on than just Moses' panicked reaction to the fallout after he killed the Egyptian. Let's look at some of these verses, at what the light that they shed on our passage here. Verse 25 says that Moses chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than enjoy sin, the fleeting pleasures of sin. They are always fleeting pleasures. I think that answers my earlier question about why Moses shouldn't have stayed in the palace. He felt God calling him out. He had a different call on his life than Joseph did. Think of all that he gave up. He was part of the royal family. He ate whatever he wanted, probably. Schooled by the finest teachers. He walked among the privileged, important, upper class, far from the filthy Hebrews who did the grunt work in the city. I mean, to the Egyptians, slaves were the lowest of the low. But he gave that up. Not just to be an ordinary guy, but to eventually be part of that slave people. He knowingly moved towards being mistreated and enduring hardship. How many of us are willing to leave the luxuries of our lives, the things that we've been become accommodated to when God calls us to sacrifice some of that? Could we lay aside the privileges we've been given, the easy pleasures, the creature comforts that we're used to? I don't know if many of us can. Now, I don't think God calls many of us to that level of sacrifice or to Moses' level of leadership. And um, not all of us are called to be missionaries and sell all we have. But God calls us to f- sacrifice something, every one of us. At the very least, He calls us to give 10%, the minimum of a tithe, to go towards the work of His kingdom. And to give of our time, our talents, our treasures, we say. God may be calling you to a lot greater sacrifice than that. I don't know. 
But God has special promises for those who will give things up in this life. He promises to reward us in the life to come. Remember Matthew 6.20, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. Moses looked ahead to the reward for one who is faithful to God, and so should we. Look at verse 26. You look closely, it says that Moses did this because of Jesus. Okay, we're, we're a couple thousand years before Jesus is born, or really named in Scripture. So was Moses literally thinking about Jesus? Well, the author of Hebrews links faithfulness to God with belief in Christ. For Old Testament believers, it was faith toward God's promises and His coming Messiah that is credited as righteousness. So even though Moses didn't understand that precisely, the author of Hebrews can attribute motives here and say that he had faith in Christ. That motivated him. Verse 27 says that he left Egypt in faith, not in fear. Well, hmm, that seems a little inconsistent with what our Exodus passage said, which Moses wrote. So I think he knew how he was feeling, right? It said, Moses was afraid, thought surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard of it and sought to kill Moses, Moses fled from Pharaoh. So what do we do with this? Is, is Scripture contradicting itself? I don't think so. Think about the fact that Moses has already been under one of these Pharaoh death warrants before as a baby, remember? And Hebrews says that Moses' parents were not afraid of the king's edict to kill their son. But I'm pretty sure that fear had to be some motivating factor. I think what Hebrews is trying to say is that their faith was stronger than their fear. So yes, they hid their baby and, and Moses fled because they were afraid that he would die, but the greater motive was obedience to God. And he's, Hebrews applauds these as acts of faith. So yes, Moses sinned, messed up, killed a man, but God was calling him out to the wilderness, further preparing him for his divine role later in his life. So Moses is done trying to help the Hebrews for a while. We're going to put that on hold for 40 years, right? So now we see in the rest of our passage, verses 16 through 22, we see an incident of his intervening for strangers. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away. But Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that we may eat bread. And Moses was content, content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah 
She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom. For he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. So who are the Midianites? Is this a pagan, secular people that Moses just happens to get involved with? Actually, no, they're descendants of Abraham. If you go back to Genesis, uh, Midian, they're named after the Midianites, was one of Abraham's sons with Keturah. That's his second wife after, that he married after Sarah died. So even though this tribe, these people are not part of the 12 tribes of Israel, the line of Isaac and Jacob from Abraham, they are God-fearing descendants of Abraham. And we, I think we see God's provision here, that Moses has landed among godly people and even among a priest. And we need to keep Moses' father-in-law in mind. He's called Ru- Ruel here, but other times he's called Jethro. He's going to play a little bit of a part in Moses' life later when Moses is leading the wilderness community. But what we see here, Moses had tried to protect people in the first part of the passage, but did it poorly and was separated from his family that he knew as a result. Now, Moses protects people. This time it goes much better and he gains a family out of it. He's invited to the priest's home. He ends up staying, marrying one of the daughters. Moses is exercising his role as a deliverer, right? The, the daughters run back and say, we've been delivered by an Egyptian. They don't know yet, but Moses was naturally gifted at protecting, delivering the weak. He's just got to figure out how to do it in God's way, God's time. And God will use him in a mighty way for building to that. I don't know if you caught, thought it was interesting. He names his son Gershom, which means sojourner or alien there. And says, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. Is he referring to his time in Egypt? Or maybe now is he saying, well, okay, I'm a, I'm a sojourner, I'm a foreigner here in Midian. I think it's vague, maybe purposely vague. could be either one. But I actually like one commentator I read said that maybe it's both and maybe it's even greater. Maybe it's all of Moses' life. Whereas he's a sojourner, a foreigner, that Moses never felt that he was in the land where he was supposed to be, right? So whether he was in Egypt with his adopted family in the wrong land or he's now in Midian where he finds his family but he's not where he's from or where he's going, he feels out of place. Because ultimately we know God's call is to the promised land. God's call in Moses' life. And God has planted a seed of discontent in him until he gets his people up and moving to the promised land. Maybe you feel out of place where you live. I talk to a lot of people. We've had a lot of people come through here I, who just say, I do not like Northern Virginia. Um, it's not where they're from. They're not sure they want to stay long term. And frankly, they're a little miserable until they get out. 
I can understand that a little bit. But sometimes I just want to shake him and say, maybe the only thing keeping you from being happy is you and your you won't set down roots. You refuse to try to make this work. All right, maybe God's calling them out. But while you're here, bloom where you're planted. Heard that? Invest where you are. Now, I can totally identify with someone that says that because that was me back in the late 90s. We lived in Florida for six years, and I just never liked Florida. It was always hot. No seasons, it was kind of flat and ugly, and then you people called me up here to beautiful Virginia and rescued us, so thank you. But I feel like we made the most of it, and we tried. We invested in people there, and I played golf and tennis, and you just got (laughs) to enjoy where you're at, even as you recognize discontent inside yourself and we should remember that none of us should love where we live too much because we are strangers and aliens in this world i don't care if you live in your hometown and you love it your entire life you are still gershom a sojourner in a foreign land we were made for a different world A heavenly kingdom where when we arrive, we will know that we're home. The desires of our hearts will be filled. We will never feel like foreigners. We will feel like we were made for that place. The obligatory C.S. Lewis quote from mere Christianity. I mean, I haven't done Luther or Calvin or Keller, so it's got to be Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that country and to help others to do the same. We are Gershom. We are, like Moses, a sojourner in a foreign land. Live and live purposely and well there, but never forget that believers are headed for the promised land of heaven. So we worked our way through the text, and now you might be thinking, all right, I got you this time, preacher. You can't draw a parallel to Jesus from this passage. Because Jesus never killed anyone, and he never got married, and he never had children, so you can't tie it in. Go ahead and try. But is there nothing here that points to Christ's work on our behalf? If you've looked ahead in your outline, you see 2 Corinthians 8-9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich... Yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And a very similar passage in Philippians 2 Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God 
a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus became a servant. He emptied himself to nothing, similar to Moses. Jesus left the palace of heaven and all the riches that were there to become one of his people, just as Moses left Pharaoh's courts to identify with his people. And he did it to lead us out of the slavery of sin, to provide the rescue and the release, freedom for his people. Now I've called attention to the different ways that Moses intervened for others, but with Jesus, we get the ultimate divine intervention because we are the one on the side of the road being beaten down. Without Jesus, we are under the dominion of a harsh slave master. Our adversary, the devil, and our own sin rule over us. We have a sentence of a lifetime of slavery, and eternal condemnation hangs over our heads, and we need someone to deliver us. Andrew Peterson has a song that reminds me of this. Deliver us. Our enemy, our captor, is no pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud, nor brick, nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we're bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Deliver us, O Yahweh, hear our cry. And God has sent his Son on the ultimate rescue mission, intervening on our behalf taking our sins on himself so that death, hell, and sin have no claim on us anymore. And as we said, intervening is risky business. It cost Jesus his life. But through his death and resurrection, we are saved and redeemed. Amen. I'll give you a few moments to pray and thank the Lord. And then I'll close this. Father God, thank you for this passage. Thank you for our study of Exodus. And in your providence, God, you allowed your people to become enslaved so that your great rescue would be all the greater. You used a man that you put in place who probably thought he blew it and had to flee Egypt. But we know that he would be brought back because he 
heard your call. And he went in your strength and your power to intervene for his people. Lord, we have a God-given desire inside of us to protect the weak. Help us to see that it is because we are made in your image and that you are the ultimate protector. That you come for those who are dead in transgressions, enemies of yours, who are captive of the devil, and you redeem us. Father God, we thank you that Jesus was called to that role, that he was obedient to you, left the riches of heaven to identify with us in the same way that Moses had to leave. That Jesus did it willingly. And Jesus lived among his enslaved people to free them, to offer himself up for their redemption. And we are of that people, of that number. And we grasp our freedom and shout thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive the benediction. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Amen.